Well, we start pretty much the same way every time, which is by remembering what T.S. Eliot said in Little Gidding, namely that the end of all our exploring will be to arrive at where we started and know the place for the first time. If that's true, it behooves us to start at the place where we hope to arrive at the end of all our exploring, which is to say in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. For that Trinitarian mystery is not only the origin of creation itself, but it is also the great mystery into which Christ came to invite us. And as it happens, our theme this month, Why Are We Here, Creation and Fall, returns us precisely to where we started, namely at the birth of humanity itself. And we will be trying, in Eliot's words, to know the place for the first time. And in doing so, lo and behold, we will be led back to the Trinity. Quote, for the Christian, writes Hansers von Balthasar, the absolute triune love between the Father and the Son in the Holy Spirit forms the very center of existence, and the Christian sees everything of any consequence in this world as gravitating toward it, end quote. Everything of any consequence can be understood only in the light of the Trinity because the Trinitarian mystery is both the source and goal of creation itself. Creation culminating in humanity is made in the image and likeness of the Trinitarian God. But precisely in order to draw out the paramount anthropological relevance of the Trinity, I feel it my duty to make a few remarks about the immediate cultural and historical setting, which makes this month's topic especially urgent. In a rightly ordered world, a world in which the most essential moral and cultural realities are, quote, as American as motherhood and apple pie, this month's theme would be the least controversial subject imaginable. With each passing day, however, the gears of a massive cultural revolution grind on, drawing Western civilization ever deeper into what John Paul II called a culture of death, the certain historical outcome of which, if not reversed, will be the death of Western civilization itself. We will all have to answer to God and posterity for how we conducted ourselves at this critically important moment in our history. So I ask your indulgence while I outline the immediate moral and political threshold we as a culture are poised to cross in the wrong direction. If my opening remarks seem overly political, the theological and anthropological argument that justifies them will follow in short order. That these preliminary remarks come only days before an election will not be lost on you, but let me assure you that I am not a member of a political party, nor do I carry a brief for one. The exercise of my civic responsibilities is simply the extension of my fidelity to the church and the moral priorities she has explicitly articulated. While you and I remain at least somewhat unsure of the outcome of the upcoming vote, most of the people listening in on our deliberations will be doing so by way of CDs and audio files well after the election. Though nothing I say here tonight will influence its outcome, the debate over the moral and cultural issues to which I'm about to make reference will grow more intense regardless of who wins the election and I would like to make a theological and anthropological contribution to that debate. 
I feel the moral obligation to speak about these controversial issues, and I've decided to begin with them because I want to turn quickly to a much, much happier topic and end with some reflections which I hope you will find helpful, hopeful, and heartening. So if you feel the impulse to walk out during my opening remarks, I hope you will resist it, even if only to spite me. For I have a hunch that for every person who walks out on a talk like this, I'll be granted a small reprieve from the punishment that awaits me in the life to come. So if you're going to reject what I have to say, I hope you will take full advantage of the opportunity to do so by hanging around long enough to reject the whole of it and not just the first of it. Speaking to the Planned Parenthood Action Fund on July 17, 2007, today's Democratic nominee for president was loudly cheered by the largest abortion provider in America when he declared, quote, the first thing I do as president is sign the Freedom of Choice Act. That's the first thing I do, end quote. The first thing he'd do, that's quite a testimony to his political priority. What is the Freedom of Choice Act? The Freedom of Choice Act would eliminate state abortion reporting requirements in all 50 states, it would render null and void laws in 44 states requiring parental notifications when minors request abortions, laws in 40 states restricting late-term abortions, laws in 46 states providing conscious protection for individual health care workers, laws in 27 states providing conscious protection for institutions like Catholic hospitals, laws in 38 states banning partial birth abortions. The bill would abolish all restrictions on government funding for abortions. Once signed into law, therefore, as the Democratic nominee for president has promised to do, all restrictions on abortions would be eliminated and they would be funded by the taxpayers, like it or not. Doctors and nurses would risk losing their jobs if they refused to cooperate. But there's more. The Born Alive Infant Protection Act, which would require medical personnel to provide medical care to children who survive an attempted abortion, passed unanimously in the U.S. Senate, all the pro-abortion politicians voting for it. But the Democratic nominee for president, then a state legislator, led the fight against an identical bill in the Illinois legislature. Robert George, professor of jurisprudence at Princeton University, a member of the President's Council on Bioethics and a former member of the United States Commission on Civil Rights, says that the Democratic nominee for president, quote, has favored protecting what is literally a form of infanticide, end quote. In stark contrast to the first thing the Democratic nominee for president would do, the first thing the first Christians did was to oppose the pagan practice of infanticide. As Martin Luther King Jr. wrote in his letter from a Birmingham jail, quote, by their effort and example, the first Christians brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide, end quote. In the pagan world, infanticide often took the form of exposure, leaving the unprotected infant to die out of the sight of those who had abandoned it. The Born Life Infant Protection Act prevented the revival of that pagan practice in our day, but the Democratic nominee for president fought vigorously against the Illinois version of that bill. As Professor George puts it, quote, he is the most extreme pro-abortion legislator ever to serve in either house of the United States Congress, end quote. To show just how unyielding he is determined to be, the Democratic nominee for president dismissed those who object to this radical proposal 
in words that cheered the Planned Parenthood gathering. Quote, I am absolutely convinced that the culture wars are just so 90s, he said. Their days are growing dark. It is time to turn the page. We want a new day here in America. We're tired of arguing about the same old stuff. On this fundamental issue, I will not yield, and Planned Parenthood will not yield, end quote. Phrases like turning a new page, moving beyond the culture wars, and so on, almost make it sound as though he has some vague compromise in mind. The truth is that the plan the Democratic nominee for president proposes for ending the culture war over abortion is to crush the pro-life opponents of abortion with draconian legislation, which amounts to the destruction of religious freedom. To the great satisfaction of the abortionist, he is also on record as opposing any federal funding for pro-life emergency pregnancy centers that provide alternatives to abortion. As weary as you and I might be of the culture wars in the face of such aggressive assertions of the culture of death, we must never grow tired of, quote, arguing about the same old stuff. For the outcome of that argument will determine whether our civilization descends into barbarism or recovers its moral bearing. His temporizing in the last presidential debate notwithstanding, the Democratic nominee for president has made it clear in a Glamour magazine interview and elsewhere that he will, in fact, apply a pro-abortion litmus test in nominating people to the judiciary and the Supreme Court. The next president will fill countless judiciary appointments and is likely to fill several vacancies on the Supreme Court. If filled with dedicated pro-abortion judges, these appointments will set the nation on a full steam ahead culture of death course for decades. Happily, if belatedly, a growing number of Catholic bishops have spoken courageously on the gravity of this situation. I came here from Dallas, where I give three talks every month, and I was pleased to see how forthrightly Bishop Farrell of Dallas and Bishop Van of Fort Worth have spoken on these matters. Their joint statement on the moral responsibility of voters in the upcoming election states unequivocally that abortion is, quote, the preeminent intrinsic evil of our day and insist on the moral obligation we have, quote, to abolish the evil of abortion in America, end quote. Even more emphatically, the Vatican official overseeing the church's highest judicial court went so far as to say that the Democratic Party, quote, risked transforming itself definitively into the party of death, end quote. Predictably, of course, others equivocate, typically suggesting that on balance, foreign policy, economic, health care, and environmental issues outweigh the life issues. Imagine living in Germany in the 1930s. The Jews are being rounded up and sent first to ghettos and then to concentration camps while otherwise decent Germans and German politicians are trying to balance their hand-wringing on this issue by pointing to how clever and compassionate their proposals are for improving the tax code or public transportation or working conditions in the armaments industry. This is the situation we face today. What, after all, was the moral monstrosity at the heart of both slavery and the Holocaust? It was that a whole class of human beings were morally and legally invisible and therefore exploitable or expendable at the whim of others. This is the crystal clear moral center of the abortion issue. If Western civilization abandons the most vulnerable and innocent to abortion, it doesn't deserve to survive. And if it abandons the institution of marriage, it won't.
For the other paramount moral and cultural issue of our age, ideologically related to the abortion issue, is the meaning and definition of marriage. The Democratic nominee for president wants to repeal the Federal Defense of Marriage Act, which he has called abhorrent, even though the act's main purpose is merely to prevent non-traditional marriages made legal in one state from binding other states to recognize them. He strongly opposes California's Proposition 8, which limits the definition of marriage to one man and one woman, restoring the law overwhelmingly passed by voters and overturned by the state Supreme Court. The dogmatic secularists relentlessly pushing this agenda are quick to say to the rest of us, just move along, there's nothing here to see, just a few belated items of social justice, nothing to be concerned about. Let's get back to the, quote, real issues we face. Busy as we are with other things, it's tempting to accept their reassurances at face value. But with a court decision here and an act of political and ecclesial equivocation there, the screws are tightened. When the Rip Van Winkles awaken and rub their eyes, they will find that beginning at an alarmingly early age, children are being taught in public schools that the deeply held moral principles of their parents and the centuries-old teachings of Christians and Jews are morally odious and socially repugnant. A hint of what's to come as the moral foundations of Western civilization continue to erode and as the modern intermission in the world's persecution of the church draws to a close and Christians once again face increasing degrees of social opprobrium, legal and financial hardship, and more. Since the Roe v. Wade decision in 1973, the number of innocent babies killed in this country alone is at 48.5 million and counting. If the voters elect a presidential candidate who has made his radical commitment to the culture of death appallingly clear, and his acquiescence in the demise of traditional marriage as clear as political expedience allows, future historians will blame two groups, American journalists and American Catholics, the culpability of neither mitigated by the threat of physical violence. History will judge the former for political bias and professional negligence, but Catholics, the swing vote in this election, will be judged more harshly for a moral failure, especially when the whole sordid episode of abortion becomes as clear in hindsight as the Nazi Holocaust is today. The past is prologue. What, pray tell, does that have to do with the theme for tonight? Why are we here, creation and fall? Speaking of John Paul II's decision to put emphasis on marriage and the family, Monsignor Livio Molina of the Lateran University in Rome says this, quote, He, John Paul II, understood that to overcome this crisis, it is not enough to repeat some moral norms. What was needed also and above all was to deepen a theological anthropology, the foundation of Christian life, end quote. And the Emmaus Road Initiative is about that, trying to deepen a theological anthropology. And I want to start by asking a question about hominization. That is to say, when did we humans show up on the scene? Beginning with a very simple and uncontroversial statement, but you may find it puzzling at first. And it is that the first human who ever lived did not have human parents. 
Now, the reason some people find that puzzling is because we live in a world that is saturated with a kind of neo-Darwinian set of presuppositions. So when we think back, we think, well, there must have been some kind of gradual segue. You know, there's animals here and then there's human beings here and somewhere in the middle. It's, I don't know, you see what I mean? Couldn't have been that way. The great anthropologist Claude Lévi-Strauss says hominization happens at a stroke, happens at a moment. The first human who ever lived did not have human parents. So we have to think about that. What occasioned the greatest threshold crossing ever? Now, of course, the exact moment when and where the threshold is crossed between the animal and the human world is mystery known only to God. I will ask three more modest questions about this hominization moment. I will ask first, what would constitute convincing evidence that the threshold had actually been crossed? And secondly, what might it tell us about ourselves and the human vocation? And finally, how might it help us understand what is at stake in the most pressing cultural controversies of our time? There are two moments of harmonization. One is what I would call ontological harmonization, the birth of human nature. And the other is cultural harmonization, the birth of human culture. They happen close together, but we can account for them in two different ways. Tonight we're going to think about the birth of human nature, but I want to put them both on the table here because there are markers that allow us to detect when the threshold has been crossed, when human nature shows up and when human culture shows up. You know human nature shows up the first time you're able to spot a non-instinctual act of self-sacrifice. In the animal world, there are instinctual acts of self-sacrifice. The mama bear will fend off peril to protect the cubs at her own risk, but that's an instinctual act of self-sacrifice. If you could locate the first non-instinctual act of self-sacrifice, you know you're in the human world. So then we have to account for what made that possible, you see. As far as culture is concerned, you know human culture has arrived on the scene if you can locate the first ritual act of blood sacrifice, because culture begins as Rene Girard has convincingly argued, with blood sacrifice. And we'll have more to say on the latter one later. Girard will be a great help in our exploration of the origin of human culture. But where shall we turn for insight into the origin of human nature? We would turn, obviously, to social science, to anthropology, to archaeology. Surely we would not want to embarrass ourselves by doing something as intellectually down market as peeking into the Bible, because we all know that the Bible is these little stories that really have no serious intellectual contribution to make to questions such as we're asking tonight, how did we humans arrive, and so on. Well, it turns out that the Bible is probably the best place to go for what I'm talking about tonight. And if you go to the first chapter of Genesis, we have this. Then God said, let us make Adam, man, mankind, Adam, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. This is immensely important. We are made in the image and likeness of God. We cannot understand ourselves without understanding God. The whole question of anthropology, which is an attempt to understand ourselves, is intimately linked to the question of theology. Theological questions and anthropological questions are two sides of the same coin. 
In the Old Testament, we find out that we're made in the image and likeness of God. It's only in the New Testament, at the end of the New Testament, that we discover that God is Trinitarian. And then it took the theologians several centuries to work out the detail. So the God in whose image and likeness we are made is a Trinitarian God. Both of these things are absolutely essential for understanding ourselves. A, we're made in the image and likeness of God, and B, the God in whose image and likeness we're made is a Trinitarian God. It's absolutely essential for understanding who we are. And there's a hint of it even here in the first Genesis. God said, let us make mankind in our image and likeness. We have image and likeness explicitly, but God is speaking in the plural, first person plural. Now, of course, the exegetes will rush on you immediately and disabuse you of any Trinitarian innuendos there. But the church fathers were not as scrupulous in this regard as the exegetes are. They figured if the text gives you a gift, receive it gracefully. You see what I mean? So there's a hint here of a Trinitarian God. And the church fathers would have been able to receive that gift. The church fathers were both more docile and more daring than the exegetes. Docile with respect to the text and daring in their assertions of its Christological and Trinitarian meaning. That paradoxical combination of docility and daring remains the gold standard of biblical interpretation. Now, Chesterton famously said that the church is bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. And to those looking at Christianity from the outside, the two doctrines that have always seemed the most offensive are the Trinity and the cross. The cross has, from the time of St. Paul forward, been folly to the pseudo-sophisticates and a scandal to the religions of the world. While the Trinity is a scandal to Jews and Muslims, among others, and a barrier to interreligious dialogue in the interest of which some are willing to set it aside. But what Paul said about the centrality of the cross, Hans Urs von Balthasar has said about the centrality of the Trinity, quote, the figure of Jesus can be read properly only in a Trinitarian context. This is where we need a Christian anthropology. The truth is that without the Trinity and the cross, we simply cannot fully appreciate the greatness of the human vocation and the tragedy of the human predicament. We'll talk about the cross next time in sessions thereafter, and we'll draw on the work of René Girard. But you won't hear much more of Girard this evening. I'll be drawing on von Balthasar, Joseph Ratzinger, poets, the Bible, and so on and so forth. One of the problems with the Trinity is the name we gave to it, which causes us to focus on its least interesting aspect, namely the numerical one. Yes, indeed, there are three persons of the Trinity, but that's not what the Trinity is about. Joseph Ratzinger has written, quote, The true God is being for, that's the Father, being from, that's the Son, and being with, that's the Holy Spirit. And, he goes on to say, man is in the image of God precisely because the being for, from, and with constitute the basic anthropological shape, end quote. What we're interested in tonight is the basic anthropological shape. So what happens in the Trinity is self-donation. The persons of the Trinity exchange love and glory and, in von Balthasar's eyes, worship inside the Trinity. What the Trinity does is self-donate one person to the other all the while. Divinity in the Trinity is something that is given and received, given and received. That's what the Trinity is all about. That's what the Trinity does. That's 
the God in whose image and likeness we are made. We love a God who loves God. That's one of the most amazing things about Christianity. So what is the basic anthropological shape? That's the question we're asking. We'll go back to the Bible. We look in chapter 2 of Genesis. Adam has been formed, but things are not finished yet. The Lord said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. It is not good that man should be alone. Why? The nights are lonely in paradise. He needs a helper for a partner. Why is that? There are very few chores in paradise, you know. What's lacking here? What's lacking here is relationship. Is relationship. If you're made in the image and likeness of a Trinitarian God, you can't fulfill that promise without entering into relationship. So it is not good that man should be alone. He is made in the image and likeness of a Trinitarian God. So here's the way the text goes, of course, in the English translation. Then the Lord said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. So, now the word so means what was just said relates to what's about to be said. So, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air. And you think, wait, did he lose his train of thought? You see, what is this? What does the birds of the air and the animals of the field have to do with Adam needing a partner? And it goes on from there. He formed every animal of the field, every bird of the air, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the air and to every animal of the field, but, and but means what was just said relates to what's about to be said. But for the man there was not found a helper for his partner. So what's all this animal business? It's related to this quest for a partner. The text actually says the man called out to these animals, and whatever he called out became its name. But he calls out to these animals, bestowing names as he does, but none of them call back. None of them respond back. So what is this describing? It's describing something that's absolutely essential to the meeting between the man and the woman in this story. First thing that has to happen is that Adam has to have his longing for that relationship aroused. This happens by him looking at these other creatures, calling out to them, calling out, calling out. Every time he calls out, that becomes the name. Nobody calls back. No response. You see, here, there, no response. But in the course of it, his longing for that relationship is awakened because the woman cannot be brought to him until he's prepared. The spark that has to leap across the arc there has to be, there has to be an intensity of longing. And this, I think, and this is what John Paul II called original solitude. It's part of that uh, awakening of that longing. So then when things were right, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he was asleep, he took out one of his ribs and clothed it in flesh and brought the woman to the man. Now, to understand what this means, I think we could transpose that into our language by saying God reached in and took Adam's heart out of his body and put it in the woman. When people fall in love, they say, she stole my heart. She stole my heart. Well, what God did is he stole Adam's heart and put it in the woman. 
and brought the woman to Adam. At which moment, upon seeing her, he said, This, at last, is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. At last, what does that mean? That means there's a period of longing, waiting, hoping. You see, at last, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Grace perfects nature. What draws the man and the woman together is hormones, instincts, sexual attraction, animality, really. But then grace touches it and something else happens. Something else comes into the world. Humanity. It crosses the threshold. A single intimate communio, that between a man and a woman, by the grace of God, transcends the instincts and hormones that occasioned it. And for at least one nanosecond is uncontaminated by sin. Our humanity, though inalienable from the moment of conception, lies dormant until we discover that our heart has been transplanted into another. A discovery the Genesis author has captured marvelously with Adam's exclamation, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. About that very verse, John Paul II said, quote, This is the subjectively beatifying beginning of human existence in the world. When Adam says, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Which helps us understand the first non-instinctual act of self-sacrifice. When do creatures become capable of non-instinctual acts of self-sacrifice? The moment after they have said, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. At that moment, Adam is capable of a non-instinctual act of self-sacrifice on her behalf. But the key, as John Paul, who explored it so well in Theology of the Body, and as von Balthasar has explored it as well, both these two men are celibates, the key is self-donation. The self-donation can take conjugal form or celibate form. It doesn't matter. The celibate life, and though without a solemn vow, the single and virginal life constitute in a special way the imitatio Christi for Christ himself was a celibate. Hollywood fantasies to the contrary notwithstanding. The celibate form of self-donation testifies in the most convincing way to the value of a life lived for the Father, from the Son, and with the Holy Spirit. This is the radical witness that every Roman collar and every nun's habit presents to the world, to the world's everlasting consternation. Ron Rollheiser says, quote, We only have two options that are life-giving. Either we embrace the many through the one by sleeping with one person in a monogamous marriage, or we embrace the one through the many by sleeping with no one in celibacy. Both of these are ways that will eventually open our sexuality up so as to embrace everyone, end quote. We're focusing on the conjugal form of the nuptial mystery for two reasons. Most people are called to it, and it's in a terrible crisis in our time. So the nuptial mystery gives us a glimpse, even if a fleeting one, of what von Balthasar and others have called, quote, the inner Trinitarian ecstasy. That is to say, what happens in the Trinity, that ecstatic experience in the Trinity, of giving and receiving and giving and receiving is something that's opened up most powerfully in our lives in the falling in love experience. Here's a poem by Theodore Reske, who explored this in many of his poems. 
Here's how he puts it. I kiss her moving mouth, her swart, hilarious skin. She breaks my breath in half. She frolics like a beast. I dance round and round, a fond and foolish man, and see and suffer myself in another being at last. See, at the beginning it just seemed like animality. It seems like sexuality, physical attraction, the desire to get something, and then suddenly it's touched by grace. And it opens out. And it's not a desire to get, but a desire to give. When the desire to get is overridden by the desire to give, there's grace. I see and suffer myself in another being at last. A little hint of the inner Trinitarian ecstasy. And that's the Genesis experience, really. And it requires sameness and otherness, human equality, and sexual complementarity. Why do we have sexual complementarity? Why do we humans come in two shapes? That's not the only way to get the job done. There are other ways. And if you ask a natural scientist, why do we have sexual complementarity? They say, well, it's obvious. We have sexual complementarity because when you have a male and female form of any species, the exchange of their genetic code becomes much more advantageous. The evolutionary process speeds up. It makes a whole lot of sense. And they leave it there. But if you ask somebody like John Paul II, who's a biblical person and also a sacramental person, what is the meaning of sexual complementarity? He would say to you, you can't know what sexual complementarity means by looking at where it came from. The question is, where is it going? What's its sacramental horizon? As I'll say next time we meet, history takes time and God gives it time. Paul Claudel, the French poet and dramatist, puts it this way. It is the end which is primordial and which summons up the means. You see? It's a totally different way of looking at the world. It's a sacramental way of looking at the world. All cultures regulate sexuality in the interest of avoiding violence, but the church has a special interest in this matter, for she exists not just as a trellis of moral guidelines and traditional admonitions, which lead to freedom by way of obedience and to love by way of self-sacrifice. The church also exists to remind us ever and again of the sacramental privilege which tends always to be lost in the daily routine and practical demands of life. In fulfilling this latter task in our world today, she has an opportunity to lead her flock to a renewed appreciation of the mystery of the Trinity by a better and fuller understanding of the mystery of nuptiality, the latter mystery being at the heart of our present cultural crisis. Here's what Hans-Urs von Balthasar says. Because of her unique structure, the Catholic Church is perhaps humanity's last bulwark of genuine appreciation of the difference between the sexes. In the dogma of the Trinity, he goes on to say, the persons must be equal in dignity, but distinct. So to understand this nuptial mystery, he goes immediately to the Trinity, which is where you have to go. He goes on, in a similar way, the church stresses the equal dignity of the man and the woman, so that the extreme oppositeness of their functions may guarantee the spiritual and physical fruitfulness of human nature, end quote. 
The equality is necessary so that the complementarity can be fruitful. The equality is essential, not the equality that destroys complementarity, but the equality that makes complementarity both physically and spiritually fruitful. The former Lutheran pastor, Jennifer Ferrara, who in her seminary days was, in her own words, quote, a garden variety feminist who believed men and women were basically the same, end quote, came later to the following conclusion, quote, masculinity and femininity are not traits like skin or eye color. They are modes of being human, modes built into the economy of salvation, end quote. Built into the economy of salvation. Equality and complementarity. But then the question is, why does sexuality get such a lofty role in Christian anthropology? I mean, I thought we're supposed to be sexual prudes. What's happening here? Hans von Balthasar, speaking of sexuality, says, It certainly has its origins in bodiliness, but it makes its effects felt in all the corners of the spirit. Laughably, those advancing the sexual revolution accuse Christians of being preoccupied with sexuality. The irony of that accusation aside, there is a grain of truth in it. The sexual, writes von Balthasar, quote, stands somewhere in the center of Christianity. Stands somewhere in the center of Christianity. In the midst of Western culture's sexual debacle, Hansers von Balthasar, speaking not just of sexuality, but of sexual intercourse itself, said, quote, the more insignificant it becomes for the world, the more precious it is to Christians, end quote. So let's take a closer look at this. When a man and woman fall in love, they default to religious vocabulary. They say forever and always and things like that. And they feel a kind of special sense of something almost holy and reverential and so on, unless it's been totally drummed out of them by pop culture. So they begin to talk in very funny ways. And they do solemn and silly things like write poetry, often not good poetry at all, but they don't care. By the way, as you have noticed, I'm not an entertainer, so I have to outsource my entertainment. So tonight I brought uh, Chesterton and some poets and so on and so forth. Here's Chesterton. He's always good for a chuckle. He says, a cow in a field seems to derive no lyrical impulse from her unrivaled opportunities for listening to the skylark. It is true, he says, that in the spring a young quadruped's fancy may lightly turn to thoughts of love, but no succession of springs has ever led it to turn, however lightly, to thoughts of literature. The seeds deposited in the Bible, writes the Eastern Orthodox theologian Pauli Dokimov, the seeds deposited in the Bible flower only after many centuries. And it wasn't until the second Christian millennium that Christianity began, clumsily to be sure, to explore the spiritual meaning of the nuptial communio and the longing for a suitable partner that attends it. The result was a cultural upheaval still very much with us, in comparison with which C.S. Lewis said the Renaissance is a mere ripple on the surface of literature. That huge explosion of romantic love in the 11th and 12th century was the big revolution. It transformed not the world, but the Christian world. The seeds had fallen everywhere, but they only took root 
in a Christian world. The mystery of nuptiality took root in a Christian world because the Christian world was the world that had a foundation of Trinitarian theology. The Renaissance ripples may have had their source in the troubadours of the 11th and 12th centuries, of course, a surprising number of whom became monks, which again reminds us that it's about self-donation. Whether it's a conjugal or celibate form is the secondary question. So strange as it may seem, and despite the fact that there are traces found everywhere one looks in history and in the world today, romantic love became a major and defining cultural phenomenon only in those cultures that had fallen under Christian influence. And as these cultures renounced their Christian patrimony, they are killing the goose that laid the golden egg. Romance is dying and sex itself is becoming boring. And that is because there is a deep and abiding relationship between the spiritual ardor of romantic love and the nuptial mystery that suffuses it on one hand, and on the other, the inner Trinitarian ecstasy for which only Christians can give a theological accounting. The falling in love experience is an erotically charged analog of the inner Trinitarian ecstasy. Von Balthasar writes that, quote, the highest realization of the relationship between the man and the woman is an extreme achievement that is made wholly possible only within Christianity, end quote, which sounds like a terribly prideful and triumphalistic thing to say. But the nuptial mystery is wholly possible only within Christianity precisely because the nuptial mystery is the outcropping in this life of the Trinitarian mystery which it is the unique historical privilege and responsibility of Christianity to make palpable to Christians and credible to the world. Here's a poem by Yeats I've always loved. Two thoughts are so mixed up I could not tell whether of her or God he thought the most. Two thoughts were so mixed up I could not tell whether of her or God he thought the most, but think that his mind's eye, when upward turned, on one sole image fell and that a slight companionable ghost, wild with divinity, so lit up the whole immense miraculous house the Bible promised us, it seemed a goldfish swimming in a bowl. What happened? The lovers come together. They're struck by this amazing thing that's happening. There's a sense that something else is happening. This slight companionable ghost, wild with divinity, lights the whole thing up. What is this slight companionable ghost, wild with divinity? It's the transcendent third. It's the Trinitarian structure of romantic love. It's what really makes it have meaning. God is in it with us because it's precisely bringing us into the Trinitarian mystery of self-donation. So all relationships that are stable and fruitful spiritually are structured in a Trinitarian way. The problem with our world as we de-Christianize is that all relationships are becoming binary. All binary relationships end up haggling. That's what binary relationships do. You see, a relationship to be spiritually fruitful has to be Trinitarian. So that slight companionable ghost while with divinities has to light up the whole thing. And then you have a relationship, a nuptial relationship, which is the outcropping of the Trinitarian mystery. Here's a theological version of Yeats' poem from Hanser's von Balthasar. In the highest fulfilled relationship between the man and the woman, he says, the divine can blaze forth and make itself present 
making it possible to experience the origin of all good as something that has drawn close. And the language is even similar, you see. The slight companion will go wild with divinity that sold it up the whole immense miraculous house. And von Balthasar says the divine can blaze forth and irradiate this experience. I've been dwelling on the inherently Trinitarian nature of the nuptial experience. In addition, however, to the slight companionable ghost subtly experienced by the man and the woman as their sexual attraction is transfused with grace, there is the slight corporeal guest who arrives on the scene with no subtlety whatsoever nine months later. These two triangles the sacramental and the domestic, the unitive and the procreative are indispensable to each other. The openness to grace in one and the openness to children in the other, two aspects of one thing. The arrival of the corporeal other coincides with a more mature and demanding grace, namely the grace of domestic life. So I would like to look at the woman's responsibility, the man's responsibility, and the relationship between them. The woman's maternal and nurturing nature is more embedded in her instinctually because it's more primary than is the man's protecting and providing impulses. She is less likely than he to betray her nature and when she does is more prompt in recovering it than is her male counterpart. I always like the joke of the man who didn't want to raise his little girl with any kind of gender stereotypes. When she turned five, he gave her a tool set for her birthday, and that night she put the hammer to bed. <laughs> Where the feminine nature is healthy, it serves as the cradle of civilization, not just because it fills the cradles, but because it awakens the spiritual spark that will forever be the child's spiritual and emotional north star. Hansers von Balthasar writes, The little child awakens to self-consciousness through being addressed by the love of the mother. Everything, the I, the thou, and the world itself, is lit up from this lightning flash of the origin with a ray so brilliant and whole that it also includes a disclosure of God. The I of the child the thou of the mother and the world itself is lit up with this lightning flash when love awakens that child. That sounds just like Yeats describing the Genesis experience, the falling in love experience. It is ultimately the same phenomenon, the difference being that the child who experiences this lightning flash that lights up his or her existence hasn't the cognitive capacity to register this event in memory even though it remains the primordial event throughout his or her life. Von Balthasar says, The eye of the child is not created by the mother, but only brought out of its latency, out of a state of being closed in on itself, into its true being and openness, end quote, which is exactly what happened to Adam in Genesis. His true being was brought out of its latency, by the love for the other. It is this experience in infancy that prepares us for the greatest spiritual adventure in life, the adventure into the mystery of love. It is this that von Balthasar had in mind, no doubt, when he wrote, quote, As the erotic faculties of the growing person begin to blossom, the ability to marvel that was enjoyed at the dawn of life 
again awakens in the same primal sense. Do you see the connection between these two things? The Genesis experience, the experience of bonding with one who thereby becomes bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, is preconditioned by the mother's love and very likely crippled at least to some extent by its absence. Or to put it the other way around, falling in love, whether with one's beloved or with Christ and his church, involves the mature rediscovery of the miracle once bestowed on the child by the mother. Precisely because the mother's role is so essential, when feminine nature is betrayed, the consequences are culturally and spiritually catastrophic, exemplified by the fact that by far the leading cause of violent death in the world today is children intentionally killed in the wombs of their mother. Today, the age at which one is most likely to suffer physical violence is from conception to birth. The very ideology that has turned nature into a religion has turned abortion, the most unmistakable violation of nature, into a sacrament, and the contraceptive interference with nature into the litmus test of moral responsibility and social sophistication. Each of these a cornerstone of the ideology that justifies itself as essential to the liberation of women. The result is a world in which the feminine is disappearing literally disappearing in places like China and India, where the widespread practice of selective abortions is producing the time bomb of the 21st century, namely societies where the ratio of males to females is so lopsided that a return to the most brutal and heartless forms of patriarchy is all but inevitable. In the Western world, meanwhile, femininity has been coarsened and encouraged to mimic the worst of male vices. An article in yesterday's New York Times reported that significant shifts in marital infidelity occurred between 2001 and 2006. The Times reported that, quote, more people are cheating and younger women appear to be catching up with men, end quote. The Times reporter, obviously proud that yet another gender distinction was biting the dust, assured her readers that, quote, women appear to be closing the adultery gap. Younger women appear to be cheating on their spouses nearly as often as men. Catching up with men in the art of cheating on their spouses. Closing the adultery gap. Almost literally, feminism on steroids. Sadly, we live in a fallen world. Coventry Patmore put it this way, love wakes men once a lifetime each they lift their heavy lids and look. And lo, what one sweet page can teach, they read with joy, then shut the book. This betrayal is not due just to the spiritual sloth and lethargy of the fallen condition. It is culturally encouraged in a systematic way. Across the board, our children are being taught explicitly and implicitly that sex is about nothing but sex and that the most essential thing to know about sex is how to prevent disease and pregnancy. With the aid of those espousing this view of things, the leadership of Western civilization is now being handed on to those we have failed to properly catechize, who as a result are almost totally ignorant of the spiritual depths of the nuptial mystery. It is now their turn to catechize, and like the Democratic nominee for president, 
they seem prepared to accomplish with blunt legal instruments what they have not been able to accomplish with argumentation. Enlightenment liberals put their faith in deracinated rationalism from which they eventually fled into politics and economics. But the post-enlightenment nihilists to which they have unwittingly given birth believe in power and the will to use it to fashion this or that ridiculous utopian project. For Christians, on the other hand, the issue is culture and its influence for good or ill on the human spirit, beginning with the domestic culture, the culture of the family, what Catholics call the domestic church. The child's life is shaped and his or her future determined to an important extent, not just by the initial awakening of the mother's love, but ideally by three keys of the domestic life, the mother, the father, and the relationship between them, which is an analog, by the way, of the Trinity. We've said something about the maternal and spousal role. Now I want to say something about the paternal and spousal role of the man. Theodore Rethke, he's the one who was stupefied to see and suffer himself in another being at last, muses in another poem about what might be the larger implications of that experience. He writes this, Between such animal and human heat, I find myself perplexed. What is desired? The impulse to make someone else complete? Between such animal and human heat, you see, he feels the animality of it. But there's another element in it too, you see. Between such animal and human heat, I find myself perplexed. What is desire? The impulse to make someone else complete? That woman would set sodden straw on fire. <laughs> that woman would set sodden straw on fire. Was I the servant of a sovereign wish? Or a ladle rattling in an empty dish? Does this have meaning? Do I have responsibilities here? Or is this just nature's trick to get me to impregnate this woman? Is this important? Am I the servant of a sovereign wish? Or a ladle rattling in an empty dish? What is desire? The impulse to make someone else complete? You see, everything is there. When the natural prompting of sexual attraction is touched by grace... It leads to spiritual, emotional, and domestic blessings of the richest and most meaningful sort. But if this communio is to be preserved and sustained, then culture must intervene to provide the codes and customs that embody an ancestral wisdom and the sacramental understanding which the young man and woman are unlikely to fully appreciate in the first instance. So you have nature, that's all the hormones and this physical attraction, the animality, and then you have grace, and that makes something very powerful and very deeply human, and then you need culture. You need nature, grace, and culture. As I said, the male's protecting and providing capacities are much less instinctual than the woman's mothering and nurturing impulses. They are much more in need of cultural reinforcement, therefore, than is the case with the woman. So the weakening of these cultural reinforcements leads quickly to the betrayal of the male's responsibility. The contemporary evidence for this is both overwhelming and disheartening. Again, this is simply one of the many unrecognized repercussions of the dechristianization of our culture and a gradual return to a pagan anthropology. 
unattached males foraging for sexual gratification, no strings attached. Grace perfects nature. We must never tire of insisting on that. But for the man, in the first instance at least, what von Balthasar calls the subsequent task is more like the suppression of instinct than its transfiguration into grace. So now I'm going to read to you a very strange and wonderful and absolutely essential quotation from Philip Reef. Philip Reef was one of the most eccentric intellectuals of his day, died a few years ago. He's the author of The Mind of the Moralist, the great book on Freud. And he wrote a book towards the end of his life, right before he died, entitled My Life and the Death Works. He was getting back at the academic world for having suffocated him for 30 years. And in that book, he says something that's unbelievably important to us today and the most countercultural thing you can imagine. Reef says this. Here we now see with startling clarity how little our established political distinctions between left and right, conservative and radical, revolutionary and reactionary matter nowadays. Now, Everybody and his uncle is out there saying they're beyond right and left, liberal, conservative. But most of the time they're not. They're just saying that. It's just a way of putting a spin on whichever side they're on. But Reef is really talking about something here. He said those things don't matter. What matters for Reef? He says any remaking of political distinction will have to ask first, whether there is in fact a discipline of inwardness, comma, a mobilization for fresh renunciations of instinct. A discipline of inwardness, by which he means, a mobilization for fresh renunciations of instinct. Or, he said, whether there is only a discipline of outwardness, comma, a mobilizing for fresh satisfactions of instinct. Those are the only distinctions. In Reef's mind, Reef is a brilliant light into the anthropological problem. He was a Jew who understood Christianity better than most of us Christians. Then he says, after that, he says, such a distinction between an inwardness that requires the renunciation of instinct and an outwardness which constantly requires the satisfaction of instinct. That distinction, he says, will divide contemporary men and movements more accurately then we shall find fashionable liberals and fascists on the same side where they really belong, end quote. Now, think about that. No renunciation of instinct, no interiority. No interiority, no self-donation, no real relationality. In order to give yourself away, you have to have yourself in hand. And if interiority depends on the renunciation of instinct, without which there's nothing but outwardness, a constant attempt to satisfy instinct, outwardness being what? Superficiality. Emptiness. Now, to destroy inwardness is to rob us quite literally of our souls. It would be hard to imagine a better way to destroy inwardness as defined by Reef than by simultaneously flooding popular culture with the pill, condoms, and sex in the city moral admonition. And then to export this deadly cocktail 
with UN bureaucrats as enablers to unsuspecting cultures the world over. The moral disease sold as a cure for the medical one it let loose on the world. But von Balthasar says the Christian task lies in trying to deepen the erotic faculty from the surface of the senses to the depths of the heart. That's the Christian task. Not to shun the erotic faculty, but to deepen it from the surface of the senses to the depths of the heart. For here, he goes on to say, Eros can keep alive and a wed amazement at one's partner's self-surrender within all the routine of the common life, even after the first sensual stimulus has evaporated. End quote. The at last moment is an ecstatic moment, but the subsequent task is to turn order into order. It's a cultural task. John Milton Somebody emailed me last month and they said, you shouldn't quote Shakespeare so much because it's hard to understand. So no Shakespeare this month, but now I'm going to quote Milton. He's infinitely harder to understand than Shakespeare. You have to get halfway through Paradise Lust before you even figure out how he's using the language. But Milton pondered the fall, obviously at great depth, and he locates his hope for the future in the spousal relationship between Adam and Eve. As they're preparing to exit the garden, Eve, now this should be a very sad day, right? Eve turns to Adam and says, Now lead on. In me is no delay. I'm ready to go, she said. And then a very convoluted Miltonian uh, formulation. With thee to go is to stay here. Without thee here to stay is to go hence unwillingly. What did she just say? With thee to go is to stay here. In other words, if I go with you, I take a little bit of paradise with me. Without thee here to stay is to go hence unwillingly. If I stay here and you go, paradise is gone. What is paradise? Paradise is the nuptial mystery. Precisely that. Can we keep it alive after the fall? Is it possible to keep it alive after the fall? You see, that's the Miltonian question at the very end of the paradise law. Can it be kept alive in spite of the fall? And the poet gives us this, the last four lines of Paradise Lost. The world was all before them, where to choose their place of rest and providence their guide. They hand in hand, with wandering steps and slow, through Eden took their solitary way. Hand in hand. Precisely where Milton locates his hope. They leave paradise hand in hand. It's a tremendous image. Just as the fall was symbolized by the furtive glances and mutual recriminations of the man and the woman, hope for the recovery of the nuptial mystery is here symbolized by the chastened couple reaching their hands to one another. This is perhaps Milton's domestic version of the sobbing embrace of Achilles and old Priam at the end of the Iliad. So we turn to Chesterton very close to the end here. Chesterton says, Whatever else men have believed in the ancient world, they have all believed that there's something the matter with mankind. This sense of sin has made it impossible to be natural and have no clothes, just as it has made it impossible to be natural and have no laws. But above all, it is to be found in that other fact, which is the father and mother of all laws, 
as it is itself founded on a father and a mother, the thing that is before all thrones and even all commonwealths. That fact is the family. And then he goes on. It may be that what we call the family had to fight its way from or through various anarchies and aberrations. I tell you, do it again today, is it not? It may be that the family had to fight its way through various anarchies and aberrations. But he goes on to say, but it certainly survived them and is quite as likely as not to have also preceded them. Some, he goes on to say, some groping in these dark beginnings have said that mankind was once under a matriarchy, but others have conjectured that what is called matriarchy was simply moral anarchy in which the mother alone remained fixed because all the fathers were fugitive and irresponsible. This Chestertonian insight came almost a century ago, long before the widespread emergence of domestic matriarchies constituted exactly according to Chesterton's analysis. Chesterton was not alone in being prescient on the subject of what has come to be called the crisis of fatherhood in our culture. The Swiss philosopher Max Picard in his 1934 classic, The Flight from God, distinguishes the world of faith from the world of the flight. And in general, we'd say what he means by the world of the flight is what we call ideological secularization, dechristianization, that sort of thing. And he says something there that's quite apropos of this uh, crisis of fatherhood, Picard says, quote, In the world of the flight, the father-child relationship has no permanence. It is only one of many chance situations which may arise between an older and a younger person. But in the world of faith, the father is always there, even in the absence of the child, and even if he is childless, he is always a father. He is something of a father to all men and things, and he is a proper father to his own child only because he schools himself to be something of a father in every situation, end quote. In the world of the flight, Picard says, the father-child relationship has no permanence, or as Chesterton put it, the mother alone remained fixed because all the fathers were fugitive and irresponsible. But then Chesterton says, there came a moment, there came a moment, Chesterton said, when the man decided to guard and guide what he had created. There came a moment. What was that moment? I submit to you, it was the moment right after he said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He became capable of a non-instinctual act of self-sacrifice and decided to guard and guide what he had created. Chesterton goes on. When the man decided to guard and guide what he had created, he became the head of the family, not as a bully with a big club to beat women with, but rather as a respectable person trying to become a responsible person. Man then, for the first time, acted like a man, and therefore, for the first time, became fully man. End quote. In other words, the man and the woman become fully human at the moment when they become husband and wife, mother and father. The birth of humanity and the birth of the family are one and the same thing. 
As Chesterton said, the family is before all thrones and all commonwealths. It is the origin of human existence itself, not simply because of its cultural and anthropological indispensability, but because it represents, as I've tried to show, the nuptial outcropping in this life of the Trinitarian drama of self-donation in whose image and likeness we are made. In acting like a man, and thus becoming fully man, the man carved out a little space of safety and peace, freeing she who had become bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh from immediate danger, and making it possible for her to give the gift of love to those to whom she had given the gift of life. Chesterton concludes with words that will bring us very close to our own conclusion. He says, quote, In the practical proportions of human history, we come back to that fundamental of the father and the mother and the child. If we are not of those who begin by invoking a divine trinity, we must nonetheless invoke a human trinity and see that triangle repeated everywhere in the pattern of the world. End quote. Whether or not you and I have inched a little closer to knowing it for the first time, this is where we started, with the Trinity, in whose image and likeness we are made, and in whose self-donating generosity we are invited to participate, fallen creatures though we are. As perfect a place as that is, to bring this session to conclusion, alas, there remains one last postscript. What can we say about the countless millions whose mothers and fathers were absent or delinquent in their parental responsibilities or who have not found the suitable partner? For that matter, who in this veil of tears has had perfect parents or the perfect spouse? Christ was not speaking to a select few when he promised not to leave us orphaned, for the fallen world is one giant orphanage. Whatever our experience of mother and father and suitable partner might be, we have a heavenly father through the mediation of Christ and an earthly mother in Mother Church, never more so than when she gathers her children around the Eucharistic table. To be in communication with Christ, writes Joseph Ratzinger, is by its very nature to be in communication with one another as well. He goes on, No more are we alongside one another, each for himself. Rather, everyone else who goes to communion is for me, so to speak, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. May the Lord support us all the day long till the shades lengthen and the evening comes and the busy world is hushed and the fever of life is over and our work is done. Then, in his mercy, may he give us a safe lodging a holy rest, and peace at last. Amen. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, visit our website at www.cornerstone-forum.org O-R-G, where you will find links to podcasts, our weblog, and other audio and video materials. 
Cornerstone Farm President Gil Bailey's 2016 book, God's Gamble, The Gravitational Power of Crucified Love, is available on Amazon in both paperback and Kindle editions. Mr. Bailey's 1995 book, Violence Unveiled, Humanity at the Crossroads, is also available on Amazon, and an audiobook version will be available on audible.com in late 2020. Thank you.